Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, Digital Comment Editor, and this week it is a budget special. We'll be dissecting George Osborne's eighth budget as Chancellor and what it means both politically and economically. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by the best brains in the country. George Osborne's former Chief of Staff, Rupert Harrison, who is now Chief Macro Strategist for Multi Asset Strategies at BlackRock, and Stephanie Flanders, Chief Market Strategist for Europe at JP Morgan, as well as an FT contributor. Thank you all for joining. So I'll begin by asking you what you made of it. Um, do you think it was a good budget and did it achieve anything? Stephanie? Well, I think if you just did it on the merits, you wouldn't say it was a particularly good budget. At the beginning of a parliament, you might have wanted to see a strong reforming line running through it with regard to the tax system. We didn't see that. In fact, we saw a lot of things that rather contradict one another. Or you might have wanted to see a quite a sort of clear picture for what spending was going to do over the next five years that wasn't dramatically different from only six months earlier. So I think it was a shame that it ended up being one of those budgets where you were responding to a lot of bad news in various ways, claiming that he was still being very hard to his long-term plan, while actually showing rather a different approach to that plan than he's previously had and what looks like short-term fixes to actually meet that surplus rule. So I think it was it was a bit of a disappointment, but maybe not a surprise, because it was clearly made in conjunction with the referendum, understanding that. And it was a feature of the lack of opposition that it was very much directed towards the sort of conservative side of the House rather than kind of broader issues. Now, Rupert, I'm going to have a bet here that you might think it was actually quite a good budget and it did achieve some things. Well, I think you have to see it in terms of the hand he was dealt. And given the numbers he was dealt, I think he dealt with it pretty well. It's not just a regular downgrade of the figures that he got from the OBR. They made a very, very big call to say that they think the trend growth rate of the economy is permanently lower. And that really affected his numbers a lot, particularly in the later years. So given that, not only did he do what was necessary to keep his fiscal strategy on track by, I think, quite sensibly penciling in, let's let's face it, some cuts at the end of the period, because the OBR might be right, they might not be right, probably sensible for the Chancellor to put in some numbers that so they can meet his target but who knows what what will happen and then i i slightly disagree with stephanie that it was uh that there wasn't any kind of interesting reforms in the budget i mean given that the economic environment he was facing was pretty tough given that there's an eu referendum on it actually wasn't particularly risk averse he introduced an entirely new and very controversial tax on fizzy drinks and he also cut capital gains tax to 20p which i think is quite a, a kind of significant thing to do politically quite risky I think economically quite sensible thing to do so that's not and some you know he made further progress on the big tax commitments he had in his manifesto on the personal allowance and the high rate threshold but I mean that was a good example actually that you at the same time as you have a ream of measures to tackle tax avoidance and actually I think probably a sensible step 
of limiting the interest deductibility for some big multinationals, you know, efforts to try and prevent sort of tax shifting internationally. He widens the gap between the corporate tax rates and the personal tax rates, which past chancellors, including um, a very reforming chancellor, Nigel Lawson, always pointed to as one of the key sources of avoidance was that large gap. So you're encouraging people to try and seem more like a company or dress something up as a capital gains rather than as personal income. So I thought, you know, that was very odd. Another example is the devolution, which is, I think, welcome and genuinely radical, some of the decentralisation of spending and policy decisions to local authorities, to regions. But at the same time, he's announcing that big cut in business rates, which he's just sort of imposing on the local authorities without really saying where they're going to get the money back. So I just thought it was just, it, there weren't very many consistent lines. I agree with Rupert that there was some interesting reform there, but it didn't seem to really add up to a single agenda. Uh, I mean, just on capital gains tax, I don't agree. There was a quite a lot of harking back to this supposedly kind of ideal Lawsonian system that we had where the rate of capital gains tax was the same as the personal income tax rate. I mean, frankly, that system of tax is utterly out of date in a global economy where capital flows very freely. I remember when we when we increased, so one of the first acts of the coalition was in, back in 2010 was to increase the capital gains tax rate from eight, what was then 18% up to 28. And all the modelling that was done is that 28% is the revenue maximising rate of capital gains tax, and that if you were to increase it beyond that, you would actually start losing money. So not only does that suggest you shouldn't, it shouldn't be up at 40, and... no, but actually the revenue maximising rate is also a very, very distorting rate, because it means that you've got huge amounts of distortions going on around 28%, locking in assets, people not selling things. It's very inefficient. So I actually think economically, just cutting it to 20 is uh, probably the best thing you could do. Well, I think more than anyone else in the country, but you actually have first-hand of experience of what goes into the creation of a George Osborne budget. And I think someone in Westminster commented to me yesterday that essentially the Treasury seemed to have gone around with a shopping trolley and just picked up policies from other departments. We had everything from the Shakespeare North Theatre to toll bridges um, being reduced here. So there was a lot of stuff in that budget that was actually nothing to do with the Treasury. Um, does this show the chance to sort of run out of ideas or is just trying to play it safe, as I believe you might have suggested in the FT this week? I think everything is to do with the Treasury, actually. And I don't think this is a particularly new phenomenon. Gordon Brown's budgets were full of all sorts of announcements about health policy, education policy. And indeed, every single George Osborne budget has included things around infrastructure, public services. Um, recently, the last few years, particularly, there's Northern Powerhouse Project and devolution. Fixing church roofs, I seem to remember. Well, indeed. But you know, there is one thing that unites all of these, which is money, and you've got to make it all add up. And so that's why the budget is a very important organising principle for the British government, because if you want something funded, you've got to get it done in the budget. And that's the point in the year and the autumn statement at which you can make things add up. You can know whether you can afford 400 million for schools because you're going to do the sugar tax. So that's why all these things happen together. The allegation here, you might or you might see a compliment, Stephanie, is that George Osborne is turning more and more into Gordon Brown with his budget. Well, I think the, the, the criticism that George Osborne always made of Gordon Brown, that he was having to do lots of fancy footwork to meet his fiscal rules that he'd imposed on himself, that he was always bringing in a ream of measures that would increase complexity in the tax system... I think you'd have to say that you could make the same criticisms of George Osborne, whether it actually is just inevitable part of being a chancellor for a certain number of years that you end up doing these things. I suspect it is. But I think the simplicity point, I think, is a shame because, for example, on savings taxes, you know, what we had been led to believe, what George Osborne has talked about in the past is wanting more simplicity, 
but also to be to raise more money, save money on the large amount of allowances and things for pensions. And instead, we're actually spending more in some good ways and some not so good ways and making the system a lot more complicated. So I just think, again, it's that sort of disconnect between the, the rhetoric and the reality. But I think it's inevitable, perhaps, that everybody becomes a Gordon Brown in the end. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think on simplification, uh, I think the lesson I drew from my time at the Treasury is that simplifying tax is a very hard thing to do. And it's much easier to do when you have a bit more cash. Because normally, the reason taxes aren't simple is because doing proper tax simplification creates lots of losers and having a bit of cash to smooth over those edges, pay off some of the losers makes life a lot easier. And in an environment where there isn't much money, it's much harder to do. And We had some ideas that we looked at early on about harmonising income tax and national insurance. The more we looked at it, for example, A, I don't think there's actually that much economic benefit to be had from that. Most small businesses where you could argue some of the economic inefficiency from that comes from now just have payroll software that does it for them. The complexity is in theory, it's not really in practice. And secondly, there are lots of losers and you need lots of money to make it politically acceptable. I suspect when you suggested having both of us on this podcast, you forgot that we both work at the Institute for Physical Studies <laughs> in our past. So we can we can go down these micro little alleyways. If you there want. was some tax simplification, but he did abolish a tax. You know, uh, Nigel Lawson style, class two national insurance, gone. So that's While um, introducing that's on something on that side of the ledger. So looking at the newspapers today and the coverage of the budget, the sugar tax is everywhere, which I think is a very good example of Linton Crosby's infamous dead cat strategy, which is to put the sugar tax right on the table so people aren't really looking at some of the targets that have been missed. So Stephanie, as we know, George Osborne set himself three rules. Um, the first of this was a cap on welfare spending. That's been broken. The second rule was to cut debt as a share of GDP every year. That's been broken. And the third one is a budget surplus by 2020. Do you think he's going to make that? And where's his credibility? Has it been shot by this or not, do you think? Well, I think it's interesting that he was able to more or less shrug off not meeting two thirds of his fiscal rules. But I guess we've always known that the surplus target by the end of the parliament was the most important one. And I kind of agree with Rupert that although you wonder how he can say with a straight face that he's sticking to his long term plan while having these quite kind of clever fixes for meeting that target at the end, that we could, we've seen that these forecasts bounce around a lot. So arguably, to leave that more or less penciled in, to leave it a bit implausible, may be the most sensible strategy rather than completely transforming policy every time. But I mean, it does sort of raise a question of what these rules are for. And, you know, is it really appropriate to be sort of fixated? I mean, one is told that he, it was very important to him that the surplus be 10 billion in the forecast and not 9 billion. That is not an economically statistically significant difference and yet policies were being made on that basis I think that's just I mean I, I think that first of all on the penciling input I don't think that I don't think it's implausible what he's penciled in for one part about 10 billion of the improvement in that year is a shift in timing of corporation tax payments that's entirely plausible it will almost certainly happen no, there's, 7 billion, there's very much there's very little doubt yeah. about it equally the spending cuts are pretty small relative to what he's been able to achieve so they're, pe- they're you know they're in at the in those late years I don't think they're implausible and if they are required, I'm pretty certain that, that he will do them. For the second reason that I think these fiscal rules do have a purpose, and we saw them yesterday, which is they force chancellors to take action to achieve their objectives. And I I, pers- I happen to think that running a surplus as a target for the UK is a very, very sensible response to the fiscal crisis we had, just as Canada and Sweden, incidentally at the time, run by centre-left governments, came to very similar conclusions after their fiscal crisis. Does it matter whether the forecast shows it's 10 or well, 9? Uh, you know, you, you pick a number that you think is a sensible margin of error, as it turns out he had a 10 billion margin of error at the autumn statement turned out not to be enough i think you're sort of slightly 
dancing on a pin. It, yeah, he wanted to deliver a ten billion man surplus because he clearly thinks that's roughly the uh, a sensible margin to have. Is that a sensible margin when we've had the revisions going from you know twenty seven billion out last November to well, six months later fifty five billion more in? Well, again, it goes down to if you're if you have a rule which is then going to be defined so narrowly, then you are going to constantly have to make these well, very minor is that changes. Necessarily a bad thing. To... You should probably be tacking a little bit as the wind changes to broadly achieve the goal you want to achieve. I think that's not a bad way to run things in an uncertain world. We're just talking about this tacking a little bit. One of the things that was interesting in the um, deficit forecast is what's going to happen in 2019-20. There seems to be this huge shift around that's going to happen. I think that, you know, it's a Herculean turnaround. It's either going to be a huge austerity package well, no, or it's not going to happen. No, well, I don't agree. I, coming back to this point, that uh, so it does go from about 20 billion deficit the year before to a 10 billion surplus the year after. Now, 10 billion of that is accounted for by a shift in timing of corporation tax payments. That is a real thing. It will happen. It's, it's almost certain to happen. I'd say there's very, very little uncertainty around that because it's just a change in the corporation tax rules. So once you got rid of that, it doesn't look like a particularly unusual fall in the deficit. Well, there's also a rearrangement of a lot bringing forward of capital investment. So there's a again, lot more public investment in one year and much less in the next but year. But again, that's pretty, you know, that's deliverable. There's nothing undeliverable about that. On the tax avoidance measures, Rupert, this is something that obviously Labour have been talking about an awful lot. And it's interesting actually how Labour haven't really featured at all in this budget debate. Mm. But how successful is this going to be? And how important is this sort of both for the Chancellor's political positioning and for finances? It's pretty important for the finances. On the political positioning, I think that this is one of those issues, tax avoidance is one of those issues, a bit like bankers' bonuses, where politicians can never win because you can never be tough enough in the public eye, but actually the issues are always a bit more complicated. And so therefore, I think as Chancellor of whatever party, you always need to be showing that you're doing enough to deal with this issue while not probably putting it front and centre because you'll never live up to expectations. In practice, it's important. It does raise the revenue. The OBR have looked at all these measures and while they find that some of them probably raise less than expected, some of them raise more on average, there doesn't seem to be a clear underperformance. So they do raise money. And I think some of the new measures that we saw yesterday are part of this very important international project, which is the OECD are bringing together a project, something called Base Erosion and Profit Shifting or BEPS to aficionados. And that has facilitated some of the things like Stephanie mentioned, restricting interest deductibility for corporates. That is only really possible under the umbrella of this international effort, because if you do it unilaterally, then you probably harm your economy. And I think it's interesting that the Chancellor has been sort of leading the way on some of that and having signalled that he was interested in this area, he's sort of trying at testing out with this proposal. I think what the actual cap not to get into the details, looks at first glance quite generous and may not sort of have a big impact on at least some of the big companies that we looked at. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you want to be testing the water. And it was interesting that in the OBR, they also had a follow up to the sort of so-called Google tax, which was the other way that we'd introduced to try and respond to this, showing that actually we're not going to raise as much from the Google tax because they were going to reorganise their affairs in order to pay the lower corporation tax. So that is actually a behavioural change that looks like it might have come from this effort. So I think he's doing pretty well on that front. And on this point, Stephanie, how has the budget been received in the city? You know, it's got a very glowing writer from the Daily Mail targeting small businesses in Middle England, but with obviously you had corporation taxes brought down again, but you've had other things that might not have been so popular. Well, that sort of effort against multinationals is obviously one measure. There's one. Some of the, the properties, there are parts of the property sector and parts of the financial sector that are not particularly happy with it, but I think they're aware of the 
public mood around these issues and about, for example, banks being able to claim against past losses when they when it comes to their corporation tax. So I think there's an understanding of that. On the broad macro stuff, there was a general feeling that it wasn't very good news, but didn't transform the outlook or which com- completely changed the way that investors think about the UK, unlike the referendum, which is obviously what yes, most people are thinking say, about. I mean, financial markets, when, if they're thinking about the UK at <laughs> all at the moment, they're thinking about the EU referendum. And, you know, we shouldn't flatter ourselves. By far the most important event in financial markets yesterday was what the Federal Reserve said, not what happened <laughs> in the House of Commons. Indeed. Now, the other thing I want to ask you about, Rupert, is the Chancellor's messaging here, and this is something obviously that you will have had a hand in back when you worked in the Treasury, that in the past the long-term economic plan was the favourite slogan that was drilled into our heads remorselessly over the past few years and during the election campaign. We had a new slogan yesterday, which was the budget for the next generation, which is, as well as maybe the Chancellor's inclination towards Star Wars, seemed to, or Star Trek, I should say, I'll get complaints for that, it seems to, indeed... (laughs) is a definite signalling of a wave of broader kind of theme here because the Conservatives always thought more about older people, pensioners who are more likely to vote and more likely to vote Conservative. Was this a definite change here or more something the Chancellor has sort of long believed for a long time is now putting on show? I think it's a very long-term theme for him. If you go back to certainly for as long as I worked for him, right from when he became Shadow Chancellor, you know, this theme of owning the future. He always talked about my generation of Conservatives differentiating himself from the generation that had gone before and also a very kind of Reaganite idea of, you know, optimism about the future, embracing new technology, next generation. I mean, I would argue also that uh, it's true that older people in Britain tend to vote more and all the political parties pay attention to that. But equally, you could argue that his major mission as Chancellor, which is tr- dealing with the public finances, is probably the greatest beneficiaries of that are probably future generations. I think that's what there is a big debate about this, because, of course, a lot of the debt reduction has been done in the name of future generations, that we don't want to burden future generations with this debt. But another argument that you could make looking at the very low level of interest rates globally and the expected continued very low interest rates, you could make the argument that the younger generation would prefer that he invest in the future, invest in increasing the net worth of the public sector, which has actually you know, fallen extremely low and been very negatively affected by the moves in the last few years. And also, although it's sort of welcome, we haven't had any measures that were just for the under 40. So I'm very happy to see the lifetime ISA. But, you know, the vast swathe of the austerity program has impacted at least the sort of younger people or families that's really, uh, that's really that not true thing. in the sense of the, oh, the biggest single saving that the government made in the last six years is increasing the state pension age which overwhelmingly affects people in their 40s and 50s that is where the the biggest savings but you wouldn't but argue that the, f- the burden of cuts had been felt by the older generations because that's clearly well not it hasn't true. i think for very good policy reasons as well actually that taking money away from people past state pension age we don't as a society expect those people to work to top up money that the government takes away from them whereas people who are of working age i think it's a very important policy and moral argument is at least if you take money, government money away from those people they have but, some ability to go out but to even work yesterday for example it. increasing the isa now the people who are actually going to benefit from that extra move from fifteen thousand to twenty thousand a year in terms of the extra but that's a tiny part of, that's savings, a tiny part of the no, cost but those people will be older well-off people well, no, but and the, that's, the, that's a tiny part of the cost of that measure the overwhelming part of the cost of that measure is the government matching for saving which i think will overwhelmingly go to younger people But I think that the general environment, including the introduction of tuition fees and other things, I mean, there is a general agreement that 
the younger and middle younger families and younger parts of the population have paid a bigger price for the last 10 years and inevitably they probably would have done but I think given the choice at the margin this is a chancellor who has consistently chosen older potentially voting I I would tend to also just point out all that the younger every younger generation is going to have a a higher lifetime income than the generation that went before them and finally I left the sweetest thing of all to last which is the sugar tax sorry I had to get a pun in there Um, Stephanie Rupert before said that it was a pretty controversial policy and we've seen from the coverage today that it is far from universally popular. Do you think it's a good thing? Well, I think, you know, clearly there's some companies that are going to be negatively affected by this. And you know, we saw the shares certain, dive in yeah, a lot and of certainly, and certainly uh, you know, some investors are going to be looking at that. I think as a matter of public policy, it looks like a sensible move. And I think particularly the fact that it's based on the sort of volume of sugar looks like quite a good way of coming into this because we know we have a lot of these very sugary drinks are actually you find they're two for the price of one and there's those kind of issues which this I think will will help to address but of course you also need to have you know we know looking around the world that there's no one solution to this issue you need a lot of lifestyle changes and public and it's been hard for governments to really change people's behavior and actually some of the money in that area has been cut in the last couple of budgets and fiscal in autumn statements so I think you know probably you need to do more on that as well. But this is the point Rupert isn't it that there's a two-year gap before this tax comes in. So essentially, what the Chancellor has done is to say to the sugary companies, you've got two years, change the content of your drinks, and you won't get hit by the tax. So it's all about behaviour as opposed to money. Yeah, I think it's quite cleverly designed in that respect, in that I think that you're likely to get more behavioural response on the corporate side in response to this than in the consumer side. And I think that you know, you, it's, tax policy can be very powerful in nudging those kinds of behaviours. I mean, funnily enough, we, we'll see a follow-up to this because the $500 million exposed to raise, I think if there was no behavioural change, the OBR model suggested that they would raise a billion. So if, we, if it turns out that this raises a lot more than the Chancellor expects, I guess that will be a question whether that's considered a good good news or bad news. And I think very finally, our listeners would forgive me if I asked this, I doubt you're going to answer, Rupert. Um, how do you think the Chancellor's standing has changed in this budget? Well, I'm not in the political world anymore, so I think I can take a pass on those <laughs> kinds of questions. But, you know, I think, you know, we've been talking about the budget and it was, was has been an interesting 48 hours. By far the most important political event of the year this year is going to be the referendum. And very briefly, Stephanie? I think it's not been... I mean, any claim that he was a different kind of Chancellor, I think, has been weakened a bit. But Rupert's right. Uh, people weren't really... We were sort of discounting this budget. There's nothing you know, egregious in it and people really focusing on the referendum. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Stephanie and Rupert for joining. We'll be back next week on our regular Saturday slot for the next instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast presented by me, Claire Barrett, the editor of FT Money. The Money Show comes out every Wednesday and you can download it at ft.com podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.